0: Speaking in general terms, Western drama originated in ancient Greece, when, in the 3rd century BCE, Aristotle wrote his Poetics. The single volume, 50 Condensed Pages, is the oldest surviving theory of literature. In it, the philosopher presented the three unities he considered essential to all drama. 1. Unity of action – that a drama should follow one plot. 2. Unity of time – that a drama should occur over no more than 24 hours. Three, unity of place, that a drama should exist in a single physical space. To apply any one of those theories to film would be an exercise in severe restriction. After all, there are plenty of movies that have more than one plot. Magnolia, City of God, Traffic, almost any Robert Altman picture, and Pulp Fiction. You must be Jules. We should make you Vincent. Let's get down to brass tacks, gentlemen. If I was informed correctly, the clock is ticking. Is that right, Jimmy? Uh, 100%. Your wife, Bonnie, comes home at 9.30 in the a.m., is that correct? Uh-huh. I was led to believe if she comes home and finds us here, she wouldn't appreciate it none too much. You will not All right, that gives us 40 minutes to get the fuck out of Dodge. As for unity of time, there are so many films that violate that principle, it is easier to list some of the films that adhere to it. Cleo from 5 to 7, Russian Ark, The Death of Dr. Lazarescu, 12 Angry Men, and High Noon. It's terrible. It's shocking. They pardon Frank Miller. What is it? I don't brother? believe it. We could go, too. Nice of them to let you know. And that ain't all. Ben Miller is down for depot now with Jim Pearce and Jack Colby. They asked about the noon train. The noon train? Well, you get out of this town. But what about Aristotle's unity of space? Well, if a film restricts itself to the one location, it is often criticised for being stage-bound. Mind you, when it comes to this movie, no one complains. Jeff, if you could only see yourself. What's the matter? What? Sitting around looking out of the window to kill time is one thing, but doing it the way you are with binoculars and, and wild opinions about every little thing you see is is disease. What, do you think I consider it a recreation? I don't know what you consider it, but if you don't stop it, I'm getting out of here. Well, what? What is it you're looking for? I just want to find out what's the matter with the salesman's wife, that's all. Does that make me sound like a madman? What makes you think there's something the matter with her? A lot her? of things. She's an invalid. She demands constant care. Yet neither the husband nor anybody else has been in to see her all day. Why? But while those principles have been loosened over the millennia, Aristotle's views on dramatic construction still hold true. For Aristotle, drama is about catharsis, where we, the audience, so identify with the characters, We feel what they feel. Aristotle argued that we only feel for the characters when they are virtuous, realistic and consistent to their nature. Which means, no matter what complications the plot delivers, the characters must respond in a way that is true to their nature. For Aristotle, that nature was tragic. The characters are flawed because the human condition is flawed. Through feeling for the characters, we experience a catharsis in their tragedy, And it is through that experience we happen upon a greater understanding of the flawed world we have created. There's no bathroom for me here. What do you mean there's no bathroom for you? here? There is no bathroom. There are no colored bathrooms in this building or any building outside the West Campus, which is half a mile away. Did you know that? I have to walk to Timbuktu just to relieve myself. And I can't use one of the handy bikes. Picture that, Mr. Harrison, my uniform, skirt below my knees, my heels, and a simple string of pearls. Well, I don't own pearls. Lord knows you don't pay colours enough to afford pearls. And I work like a dog, day and night, living off a coffee from a pot none of you want to touch! But here's the thing. Aristotle didn't write a single volume on poetics. He wrote two. The first addressed tragedy, the second comedy. We know this because in the first volume, he writes that he will later speak of comedy. But that volume has been lost to history, and so we do not know what Aristotle had to say about laughter. Which brings me to Roxanne. This time I want you to do it, Dave. I want you to cut the thing off! I'm tired of having a magnificent, fabulous, interesting nose. I want a cute little purd, little petite, little button nose. Give me the American beauty, Dave. CD, you know I can't. Oh, yes, you can, Dave. You can do it. Get the knife. Cut me, Dave. Cut it. I can't? Allergies to anesthetics are very, very dangerous. You know that. You've been in combs before. You do it the old-fashioned way. Don't be stupid. Ah, I want to look like Diana Ross. What you want is psychotherapy. Yeah, I can hear it now. Get used to it. $85, please. Look, see, have you ever thought that you were born with his nose for a reason? Written by and starring Steve Martin and directed by Fred Skepsi, Roxanne is, of course, a comedy, but it is based on the tragedy Serrano de Bergerac. Serrano is a poet in love with Roxanne, but fears that she will reject him because of the size of his nose. Serrano's friend Christian is also in love with Roxanne, But, while Christian is handsome, he is also shy, so Serrano writes amorous letters to Roxanne on his behalf. That way, at least, Christian may win her heart. Premiered in 1897 by French playwright Edmond Rostand, it is important to know that he based it on the real-life Serrano de Bergerac, who lived in the 17th century. Born Savinien Serrano de Bergerac into a meagre but well-educated family of five boys and one girl, Serrano grew up to be a writer of not only original but far-seeking stories, the most influential of which was only published after he died at the age of 36. Serrano's posthumous novel, The Other World, Comical History of the States and Empires of the Moon, is a unique blend of confession, satire, and science fiction. And his fascination with astronomy led him to foretell of a time where we travel to the moon in rockets. What is it? It's actually two pairs of stars revolving around each other, but they're so far away, they look like one. What keeps them together? Mutual attraction. Hmm. Well, it's fairly romantic. <laughs> yeah. Strange attractors in my window of possible movement. Say again? Passionate kisses, I hope you'll read with your lips. Roxanne. Sorry. <laughs> something from a letter I got. Oh yeah? Yeah, an amazing letter. You liked it? Yeah, I didn't like it, I loved it. <laughs> However, the truth about the real life Serrano was that while he was a renowned man of letters, whose talent for satire earned him several enemies, and with those enemies, he fought several duels. He was a famed swordsman who also fought at the Siege of Arras. Yes, he did have a cousin named Roxanne, but there was no evidence of any amorous tension between them, and Serrano certainly did not have a bumbling friend whom he assisted in serenading his cousin. However, he did have a real life outside proboscis. Here is Jose Ferrer championing the supersized snifter in his Oscar winning performance from the 1950 adaptation. What? You accuse me of absurdity? Small my nose? Why, magnificent my nose! You pug, you knob, you buttonhead! Know that I glory in this nose of mine, for a great nose indicates a great man. Genial, courteous, intellectual, virile, courageous. Whilst that face of yours, that blank, inglorious concavity which my right hand finds on top of you, is as devoid of pride, of poetry, of soul, of picturesqueness, of contour, of character, of... Nose, in short, is that which at the bottom of that limp spine of yours, my left foot. Oh, <laughs> so the question is, why did Edwin Rostan take a real-life historical figure and distort the truth about his love life? Because what Rostan was doing was using Serrano's story to explore a deep truth about human nature. The play examines the fears and insecurities that compel us to disguise ourselves and deceive the people we fall in love with, All in order to win their hand. Either through chronic low self-esteem or momentary self-doubt, we often consider ourselves so unworthy of the person to whom we are attracted. We embody the paraphrase of Groucho Marx's joke, I wouldn't want to be with any person who would settle for the likes of me as their partner. Rather than have the courage to express our true selves, we opt to hide behind our fictitious selves. We construct those fictions on the belief that they are our better selves, or at least reflections of how we want the world to think of us. Smarter, nicer, richer. But they can't be our better selves for the simple fact that they are built on deception. But before you can summon the courage to open your heart and offer it up to the person you love, you must first overcome yourself. The persona you create is the metaphor you have to unmask and recognise in order to understand and accept who you are. Centuries before Rostand did it, Shakespeare had explored that emotional territory in The Merchant of Venice, As You Like It, and Twelfth Night. And it's not just theatre. You have it also in opera, with Mozart's The Marriage of Figaro, Verdi's Mantua, and Gilbert and Sullivan's The Mikado. With Hollywood continuing the tradition, with the likes of the shop around the corner, some like it hot, Wedding crashers and Tootsie. I mean, if I didn't love Julie before, you should have seen a look on her face when she thought I was a lesbian. Lesbian? You just said gay. No, 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 no. Sandy thinks I'm gay. Julie thinks I'm a lesbian. I thought Dorothy was supposed to be straight. Dorothy is straight. Les the sweetest, nicest man in the world, and I asked me to marry him. A Guy named Les wants you to marry him? Yeah, no, not Matt no, wants to marry Dorothy. Does he know she's a lesbian? Dorothy's not a lesbian! I know that, but does he know that? No what? That well, I don't I don't know. But all those deceptions and confessions enjoy happy endings. Rostan afforded no such joy to his Serrano. So again, for what purpose? This one is a little trickier, but it boils down to sacrifice. Serrano gives up the better part of himself to serve someone whom he thinks is worthy of Roxanne's hand. Which brings us back to Aristotle's poetics. According to his theory, When we so clearly recognise and understand what a character is feeling, we feel what they feel. In the moments where Serrano feeds Christian the lines to Wu Roxanne, we so identify with Serrano's sacrificial plight that we feel both his elation and sorrow. Because he is doing it at great cost to himself, we feel pity for him, and also admiration. Although Aristotle was unaware of neuroscience, He understood enough of human nature to sense what recent research is revealing. Our brains consist of many things, and one component is the mirror neuron. Strange as it may sound, the human brain cannot differentiate between that which is real and not real. When we watch a character doing something on screen, the mirror neurons prompts our brain to think that we are doing it. So, on a subconscious level, we are experiencing what the characters are experiencing. It doesn't matter who they are. If the story is carefully crafted enough, it doesn't even matter what they are. Oh. oh, he lives, hey, dude! Oh, what happened? Oh, I saw the whole thing, dude. First you were all like, whoa! And then we were like, whoa! And then you were like, whoa! What are you talking about? You, Miniman, taking on the jellies! You got serious thrill issues, dude. Oh, <laughs> awesome. Oh, oh, my stomach. Oh. Oh man. Hey, no hurling on the shell, dude. Okay, just waxed it. So, Mr. Turtle. Whoa, dude. Mr. Turtle is my father. Name's Crush. Crush. Really? Okay, Crush. Listen, I need to get to the East Australian Current. EAC. Oh, dude. You're riding it, dude! Check it out! Great stories teach us how to live, and when we see the characters undergoing change, their transformation becomes our lesson. So what was Serrano's transformation, and what was Rostan's lesson? The two are one, because no matter how noble Serrano's intentions appear, his actions were deceptive. And that deception results in a life of loneliness and regret. It is only by seeing Serrano old and alone, filled with sadness, that we see our possible futures. If Rostan had written a happy ending, like the one Steve Martin gave us in 1987, we would not experience the catharsis. We would think the deception is justified because we would think the confession is enough to wipe the slate clean. But consider this. If Roxanne had refused to accept the confession, if all she saw was the deception, it would appear that she is the cause of the problem. But she is not. Serrano is the cause of his own flaw. And the tragic ending makes sure we understand the lesson. There have been several adaptations of Rostan's play from Japan, India, France and the US. And some of them have transformed the premise into something surprising. Hey Metro losers, this is Metro Tower. They say it's supposed to be a symbol of our city's strength, but for me, it's a reminder of the day this woman ferociously ripped out my heart. And I hate reminders! But for many people, myself included, the best adaptation is Jean-Paul Rapineau's production from 1990, with the former force of nature, Gérard Depardieu, in the title role. If you're fluent in French, which I am not, you can hear Gaston's original verses delivered in full flow, and if you're reading subtitles in English, you can rest assured that the translation, meticulously delivered by Anthony Burgess, retains as much as possible Rostan's rapturous poetry. Or, to use the specific French term, Alexandrine. So, if you want a version that plums the depths of Serana de Bergerac's passion, jealousy, hope, fear, tenderness, sympathy, wit, intelligence, vengeance, camaraderie, loneliness and regret... Rapanus production is the one. J'aime. Et peut-on savoir Tu ne m'as jamais dit. Qui j'aime. Réfléchis, voyons. Il m'interdit le rêve d'être aimé même par une laide. Ce n'est qui d'un quart d'heure en tout lieu me précède, alors moi j'aime qui Mais cela va de soi. J'aime, mais c'est forcé, la plus belle qui soit. La plus belle. La plus fine, la plus brillante, la plus douce, le bré. Comme la plus savante. Ah mon Dieu, je comprends, c'est clair. C'est diaphane. Madeleine Robin, ta cousine. Oui. Roxane.